0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Catherine Kleppinger, the author of Branding the Burr Author, Minority Writing in the Media in France, 1983 to 2013. And the book was published by Liverpool University Press in 2015. Hi there, Catherine. Hello. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. This is
0: very exciting. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on French literature?
1: Sure. Um, you know, it's kind of funny how sometimes it comes down to a lot of things about luck. Um, so I I don't have any sort of French background in my family, but when I was in middle school and had to choose a language, I kind of chose French somewhat haphazardly, but got incredibly lucky that I had um, amazing teachers, both in high school and, and, um, and then in college as well. And so I think it's one of those cases of just having such inspiring teachers that keeps you moving forward um, in, in the discipline. Um, but in terms of moving from the... I guess I would say kind of interest in the language and the grammar to something more developed really happened after college when I went to uh, do the teaching assistantship program in France and I was assigned to um, the town in Alsace-Colmar, which was a lovely little town. Um, And I was actually stationed in one of the Beaulieu, so in um, the outer ring sections and I was working with um, a more, diverse population, we could say, from what I was aware of as being part of France. And so that was quite a learning experience. And that's what got me interested in thinking more broadly about what makes France the country it is today and, and, and moving in that direction.
0: Let's start, Catherine, with the idea of the bur author and this term bur. So what can you tell us about the origins of the term and the relationship of Beurre to authors of North African heritage?
1: Right. Uh, and it's it's a it's actually a really complicated question because from a, a purely linguistic standpoint, beur is a word that arose in the early 1980s, and it's meant to be verlon, so the inversion of syllables of the word mm-hmm. arab or Arab. And so it's it's symbolic of this idea that we're applying a French Backslang tradition to a word that identifies as Arab, in order to then designate the what is known as kind of the second generation, which is incredibly problematic, but to the the children of North African immigrants to France. So it's a way of stating, in a sense, we're both French and Arab. Mm-hmm. And so so the word started in a relatively positive domain as a way of proclaiming a belonging and an identity but it very, very quickly became much more controversial as politicians, journalists started using it, and using it in ways that were often condescending and uncritical. And so it, it quickly moved from being a, a term designating a sense of pride and group identity into something that felt recuperated or co-opted. Uh, so it's it's not a very appreciated term and particularly now it's seen as very dated Hmm. and yet what's interesting about it is that it's still here so we know the problems associated with it and scholars all recognize that this is a very complicated term and one of the things that struck me about these authors in particular is how much energy they spend trying to get away from it Mm -hmm. um And so this is not a term that they use themselves by any standard. And in fact, most of the authors are trying to say, we don't do that. You know, stop, stop using this word. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to us anymore. And yet it's still here. And so one of the questions I was asking was not so much how to define the term, but how it's been used and how it's been used over time and how that has changed.
0: In the first chapter of the book, Catherine, you point to this, and I'm quoting you, a paradox of ethnic minority writing. And minority writing is also featured in the the title of the book. So what can you tell us about the nature of this paradox and how you're exploring some of these kinds of contradictions
1: in this work? So one kind of foundational difficulty that I noticed as soon as I started with this project is that these works that I'm talking about in, in the book are often narratives that could be seen as semi-autobiographical. So they often Mm -hmm. have a perspective, you know, related in the first person. They're telling very concretely identifiable stories located in specific locations. And so we could read them in a sense as a form of document, as a socio-political or anthropological presentation of, of immigrant life. Um, And so there's, there's that aspect of it where it does present and give voice to a population that historically in France did not have um, as much of a presence in either the public sphere or in literature. So there is that aspect of it, that the Mm -hmm. content and subject matter does present a different and unique present perspective But then at the same time, there's this other difficulty, which is that, of course, in historical French literary tradition, literature is seen as having this universal appeal that can speak to anyone about big questions of, you know, the meaning of life or coming of age in a very philosophical direction. Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, how can we appreciate these novels as being works of art in a French context as being universal and having this broad-based meditation when they're also looking at a very specific population. And Mm -hmm. what I'm noticing is that there's quite a contradiction between the theory of this universalism and then how it's applied. So a, for lack of a better term, you know, Franco-French or white French author from the middle class writing is received very differently than an author of North African heritage living in Abonia and writing about the immigrant experience.
0: You emphasize throughout the book Catherine the ways that a focus on the socio-political and responses to and analyses of this burr literature and film causes us to lose sight of the artistic qualities of the work. So is this a broad issue in French literature that is then more right. acute for the burr author?
1: And, it, and I would answer your question by saying it cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I, what I really noticed, and this is something that several of the authors identify themselves, is that they're not opposed to discussing the sociopolitical aspects, and they recognize that their books do engage with a very important set of debates. But what they find frustrating is that it's limited to that. So that's mm-hmm. the only space of conversation, as if the only goal of the work was to write a document, as if there's not, any sort of space for it to be both political and artistic. And these are the kind of things that we don't hear as much when we talk about Camus, for example, or Sartre, that it it can be both carefully written, stylized in what we consider a kind of normative artistic sense Mm -hmm. without giving credit to the authors today of a similar type of goal, And I think there are several reasons why this happens, Um, one of which is the language use. A lot of these um, writers are using an urban language, a very youthful, um, what we might see as informal. And yet we can still see that there is a syntax, there's a rhythm, there's a coherent voice. Mm -hmm. So, sure, it's not necessarily the French of the Académie Française, but it's still written with a close attention, to sound and rhythm and detail. So, you know, we could still say it's artistic. It's just using a different set of criteria. And why isn't that respected as such in the same way is a question that comes up over and over again throughout, throughout my study.
0: So, Catherine, early on in the book, you make reference to events of early 2015 and the attacks on Charlie Hebdo. How do you see the book as a contribution to some of the Current discussions and debates about politics and identity in France in the wake of these and other recent traumatic events. I mean, I have to assume that you were working on this book long before those events, but you, right. you invoke them at the beginning of the book, and I'm just wondering uh, where you see the book in relationship to to
1: some of those recent occurrences. Right, um, and and I think the book does provide a lot of useful background for understanding how we got to this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Because I will say in 2015, you know, I was certainly shocked by what happened, but I can't say that I was necessarily surprised that there was a feeling of inevitability that this frustration was going to erupt in some way. And and I felt the same way in 2005 with with the urban riots, that again, it still felt like something wasn't quite right. And where I see that in this book and how this book can contribute to a broader-based understanding can take place in a couple different ways. Um, from a generational standpoint, one thing that I trace over the course of the not, of the book is how the different authors over time, so I start in 1983 but move all the way up through as contemporary as I could, um, how these authors engage with questions that put them in a very specific category. And so what their responses are to say either, yes, I am part of this and I'm proud of it, let me tell you about it, which was the case in the earlier era, versus up through today when authors are saying, stop stereotyping me, don't don't put me in this box, that's not fair. And so you can see how the authors, the more contemporary authors of the past few years have become more vocal about racism, about discrimination, about stereotyping, and and the frustrations that that entails. Mm -hmm. So on that side, you can see a more vocal trend in identifying and critiquing the very real problems that are faced. Um, The other thing I've noticed is that there's also an increasing emphasis on violence, In the novels, I mean, um, and the role that that plays um, in some cases, such as Rashid Jaidani, who's the subject of chapter um, five, I believe, if I remember off the top of my head, um, Mm -hmm. is he's trying to explain where does this violence come from? So he's saying, yes, it's here, but let me tell you why. Um, there was also a large a large group of authors who published their first works in 2006 after the riots, and so mm-hmm. they're also saying, "How did we get to this point?" Um, and so I think by following the trajectory of these authors, you can also understand how the population feels in terms of how they're treated by French society. And in that case, you can see a sharpening of the discourse. I do end the book on a more positive note since I wrote it earlier than a lot of what happened. Um, And one sense, one piece of optimistic conclusion I came to was the fact that these authors today are, you know, that they're saying, stop putting me in this category is really demonstrating how French they feel. They're saying that this immigrant label doesn't mean anything to me because I'm not, you know, I'm not from an immigrant. I'm not an immigrant myself. I'm I'm French. So on the one hand we see how distinctly these authors are identifying as French today. On the other hand we also see how frustrated they are that they're not being recognized as such. So I think you know it it, it cuts both ways, but the book itself, my book I mean, can can really demonstrate how how the discourse has changed over time and then also how it hasn't and what that what that entails.
0: You set up the book, Catherine, as an analysis and a response to the branding of these authors by scholars and journalists. Could you say a little bit about how your work is both building on and perhaps seeking to challenge some of the assumptions of previous scholarship in this field?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and And I'll start by saying that I agree with most of the scholarship that has come out that these books contribute powerful, relevant, interesting, important perspectives on immigrant identity politics in Mm -hmm. in contemporary France. So it's not so much that I'm disagreeing with previous authors or previous scholars, but what I noticed was that there seemed to be a convergence, and it was a convergence of themes, of discussions of the importance of this, and that if you gather the number of works that really focus on the artistic... Aspects, or even just questioning the categories, I didn't find nearly as many. Um, and, and I think it's a necessary first step to to just look at these novels to see to see what's in them. But what I started noticing was, first of all, that there's a corpus, that there's a certain number of texts that seem to get the most attention. And I started asking myself the question, why, why, why these texts? Mm -hmm. And then also that they were seen as doing, doing very specific work. Um, And so I wanted to consider also, also why. So I see myself as positioning somewhat as a second level that we needed this first tier of studies to demonstrate the importance of these works. And then I'm asking the question, you know, why these works and why these authors and how did we get to this point today?
0: So in terms of the authors and the works that you've chosen to focus on in in the book, I mean, you sort of just answered that question that I might have had, but you're also interested in the very specific audiovisual media representation and discussion of these works uh, in television and radio interviews. So I wanted to ask you about this choice, particularly with respect to the emphasis on the audiovisual rather than print media. Right,
1: uh, and and I did in an earlier version. I I did spend more time with the print media, but I ended up. Um, in my revisions, privileging the audio visual, because I liked the idea of the exchange, mm-hmm. and I thought that the conversation between a journalist and then the author provided some unique insights that even a printed interview couldn't couldn't necessarily convey. Mm-hmm. Um, so in particular, we can see just visual aspects like body language or the choice of clothing that the authors wear, and also just how they how they pr- present themselves. Are they comfortable on screen or not? You can often see how they're responding to questions based on facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this adds a sense of, I guess, what I would call immediacy and exchange that, um, that we just can't get from any other, other media. Um, and, and one other related question that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about was reception and mm-hmm. thinking about how these books are received in a bigger picture and I did ask several authors what sorts of letters they had received from, from readers and fans, and it was, it was generic, but th- all of them said they'd received quite a number from just about any person you could imagine. So they were all saying, no, I have a broad appeal. I'm getting letters from everyone. Hmm. It's a little difficult as a researcher to, to, to pin that down. So what I was trying to do with this audiovisual um, approach was then to help understand what factors would be going into the reception, what would be shaping the public discourse about these books, and then by extension, by the population. Um, and there's also the question of new media and and how that fits in. But since I was particularly looking in the 1980s and the 1990s as this genre was coming to fruition, this is the moment of television really mm-hmm. it's when by 1989 96% of all french had at least you know one television at home and there are statistics of how many hours of television they watched French television was also much more centralized than what we in the United States might have been used to. Um, And so that means that there was an audience in a way that really meant that these television shows, either some which were very literary, such as Apostrophe, which was on primetime on Friday nights, reached a large audience, or even news programs like the Vente or the 8 p.m. news hour where they would include small snippets of interviews with with these authors. It meant that these particular venues were reaching a very, very wide audience. And I intentionally focused on the national news and with only one paid subscription channel, Canal Plus, because it's it's been the most popular. I, I didn't want to go into regionalist or try to split hairs on that. I was really looking at the authors that gained a national traction. Mm-hmm.
0: What about your methodology, Catherine, in terms of, well, I guess there's at least two parts to it. There's how you read the novels themselves, um, but also how are you reading the interviews? You talk about body language and exchange and uh, the presentation of these authors and the self-presentation of these authors. What are you using in terms of a framework or approach to, to read uh, the material that you're looking at in the book?
1: Right. Um, and it's hard to put a kind of single term to it. I know I we'd sure. often call it content analysis where I'm looking at, um, for example, the phrasing. So I include quite a number of citations of direct quotes of from these authors and. Um, On a few instances where I was able to capture some body language, such as Azuz Begog, for example, he has really wide hand gestures, and it it really demonstrates the Mm -hmm. passion that he brought to his his commentary. So I try to include some of that as well, just to transmit his energy and explain how he was so effective at, at a given time. Um, it is difficult with a visual genre to then translate it into the book. Um, so trying to have a lot of explanations of the bigger settings. I didn't want it to be too many to then get bogged down, but just enough to be able to understand the personalities and the kind of styles, the communication styles that these authors each mm-hmm. brought to their own to their own interviews. How much do you
0: explore the role of publishers in the book, Catherine? I mean, with respect to how these authors get their work out there and how it is then subsequently marketed, even, I guess, before it hits radio and TV.
1: Right. And and this is another question I thought long and hard about in the sense that, I could have done this project very differently and made it a very kind of, I guess I would say, sociological study of the publishing houses, which ones are publishing which authors, mm-hmm. how they're making this process, which authors they choose and which ones mm-hmm. they don't. Um, so I did interview several publishers as well as some attachés de presse and um, some television journalists, actually, some interviewers, um, to to get a better sense, at least, of how the system works. Um, But I decided not to make that the entire focus of my research, just because I felt like I wanted to look at a bigger picture. I was looking at public discourse and the kind of work that it's doing in society, and so, while I agree that this type of question of who's getting published and how this happens is very important, I didn't feel like I could do justice to it in the context of this particular book. Um, so, I guess what I would say is that's another book, and I agree that it would be important. It just wasn't the one that I was trying to write.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, Catherine, you start
0: the series of portraits and analyses with Mehdi Sharef. And I'm just wondering why. He's the author you begin with, and the book begins in 1983 with the publication of Le Théo Areme. So why is this your starting place?
1: Right. Well, in many ways, it was a pretty natural or straightforward place to start because this is the first novel written by a member of this population, this North African population in France, that also received major attention in the media. So mm-hmm. there, it's not necessarily the First novel published but the previous ones did not receive any attention and there was also at least one previous novel by Leila Sebar that got some attention but Leila Sebar was not identified as a member of this group. Hmm. So Le Thé is kind of the perfect crystallization of all of the questions I'm asking and it is the very first novel to benefit from that from that exposure um, it's also one that it received quite a bit of attention, both mm-hmm. because of the book, but also because of the film that came out two years afterwards in 1985. Um, but in 1983, Sharaf was receiving all sorts of attention, both in the print and in the audiovisual media. So he was very much identified as this unique Almost someone from, you know, outer space just dropped in and wrote this amazing book. And so then there was so much attention devoted to this book and what it was doing and how it was accomplishing its goals. And Sheriff was appearing on television shows quite frequently. So that that's that was a fairly organic place to start.
0: mm mm-hmm. So how did the appearance of Le Théoram converge with what was going on uh, in France with respect to issues of national identity, ethnicity, race, religion
1: in the early 1980s? Well, so Le RM was published in February of 1983. So mm-hmm. it actually preceded the movement that came to be known as the Beurre political moment, the the Marche des Beurs, when a large group of young um, people from North African heritage actually marched from Marseille up to Paris in order to protest discrimination and also seek to identify themselves more with France. That happened later. That was in um, November and December of of 1983. Mm. So it's interesting to see how several of these interviews are taking place right before this moment And yet it's still taking place in a context because in summer of 1983, had already reached a point of, in the media at least, there was a discussion of the concern about life in the banlieue as adolescents. There had been several what they'd called rodeos where cars had been stolen and driven around in police chases, particularly in Lyon. So this had been happening Mm -hmm. all through that summer. Um, And in an interview with Midi Sheref, he was, very kind of almost zen about it was what i would say in the sense that he wrote the book before this happened but then he realized that it was a useful moment and why not take advantage of it why not present himself this way because it was effective um he's one of the few today who does not find the terminology particularly insulting he his comment on it when i asked him was basically well I used it to get attention and to launch my career. And then I started doing other things and, and, and that's that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. he was, he was pretty calm about it. Um, the only harsh words that he had were for, um, the, the socialist government actually. And this was when the film came out in 1985, which was that he sponsored his filmmakers. They, they sponsored a showing of it for uh, the government. So this is, um, François Mitterrand's government, and at the time, Jack Long was uh, minister of culture. And Sharif mentioned that he overheard, as he was leaving, he overheard Jack Long making a comment along the lines of, "This is a great film. How can we use it to our, mm. you know, to our advantage?" And that's when he realized that he didn't want to be co-opted either. And so there was this push-pull between his using the moment to launch his career and Gain traction for his future projects versus letting Jack Long kind of define the define the film, and so he, mm-hmm. he identified that as as a as a difficulty um, in his in his moment. It was kind of a moment of reckoning with relationship to politics for him.
0: You go on in the book, Catherine, to talk about two other authors. This is in the third chapter, Aziz Begag and uh, Farida Bedgul. Um, and you use these, the story of these two authors in responses to their work to explore this tension between themes of social and political commentary and the artistic dimensions of the writing further. So what do these two examples illuminate along those lines?
1: So what I found particularly interesting about these two authors was that they each published their first book in 1986. Mm-hmm. So this is happening right at the same time, Gond du Chabat by Aziz Begag and then Georgette by Farida Belgoul and what we see is that azuz begog is incredibly effective and passionate about immigrant identity politics about the republic about all these bigger questions that are very socio-politically determined and so he's I- extremely effective on television he is going out and talking to everybody he's interviewing on any channel in any capacity and he brings this delightful storytelling approach that that really sucks viewers in. And then on the other hand we have Farida Belgoul, who is quite a quite a pistol in a lot of ways where she will openly tell her interviewers that they've asked the wrong question, that she has no interest in discussing immigrant identity politics. In fact, her main character in Georgette is unidentified. We don't know what her ethnic background is. Hmm. There's, there are hints that would imply North African, but it's never stated. Um, so what ends up happening is that Aziz Begog is showing up on these incredibly popular primetime television shows where Farida Belghoul is on highly specialized culture programming on the radio. And this lends itself to a very different dynamic. Farida Belghoul is not the type of person to speak in sound bites. She needs time to develop her arguments and develop her thoughts. She's also a tough interviewee because she will tell Her journalist interviewers exactly what she thinks of their questions and why they're they're wrong. Um, And she did the same same to me when I interviewed her. Um, And so I think what happens as a result is that she ends up really getting lost. Um, She doesn't participate in nearly as many interviews and Bigog is such a dominant figure that he's the one who's contributing to the understandings of what, what this literature even can be expected to do. Um, so so her voice is present for a short term in specialized networks, but then fades away. And I read this as indicative of just further explaining how a loose idea of this genre as being sociopolitical came about because its early promoters were the ones who who contributed the most to understanding how how this how this literature should be read and and voices that didn't necessarily agree ended up mostly just becoming silenced over time.
0: You also explore the figure of the Berrette in uh, in the book in especially in chapters four and six catherine so what can we say in terms of a female perspective um, both in the novels that you're looking at and in you know, women's experience as authors? Is there a double essentializing
1: that goes on when reading the work of female Bur authors? It's it's a it's an important and interesting question, um, particularly because what I noticed was a change over time. Mm. So in the nineteen eighties, I mean, it's true that the authors I look at who are receiving the most attention are male. The broader discourse was not so much about gender. That switches and change, it changes fundamentally in the nineteen nineties, mm. and. I think one of the major moments that crystallizes this is the first veil affair, which occurred in 1989. So we mm-hmm. see this turning point of what are the what are the constraints placed upon young women in in these communities. And so what I noticed was then the there was a genre that then arose and become became more visible. Often called burret writing, so a feminizing of the the beur, uh terminology, which again is another burlet is another term that was really never accepted by those it was developed to to designate. Um, and so, in one in chapter four, I use um, the 1990s kind of early era as my case study to understand. How did this come to be and how did the certain authors who, who gained the most attention, um, how did that happen and, and why? And I used two different authors, um, Soraya Nini's, "Idées que je suis une Barrette, And then from two, that was from 1993. And then from 2002, um, Samira Belil's Dans l'enfer des tournantes. And what I noticed was, you know, these are, technically very different books in that the first one from 1993 is written as a work of fiction with a first-person narrator telling her life as, as, an, as a, young, um, a young woman from the ages of about 12 to 18. The second one is a memoir, and it was written by a survivor of some horrific gang rapes who was able to heal appropriately later and, and write this book. And what I noticed was that the the reception of the two books were almost identical. And by that I mean this the questions were very similar in terms of what sort of constraints are placed on women, why are women suffering, what is the role of the men in victimizing the women, how are they trying to free themselves, supposedly. Um, so it was this it was a very specific approach attitude and approach and then on top of it these two authors were extremely what i would say is republican french in their answers so they were very patriotic but they were also in a sense saying we need more help from france that france french values french society Mm -hmm. is something that we need more of and we'll Almost save us, and so um, Soraya Nini, for example, is very clear in saying the veil is something that is imposed and it should be outlawed because these young women need the need the support of the French state to be able to affirm themselves. You know, this kind of this kind of discourse, which in some ways we could say it's pretty reassuring for the French kind of republican establishment, mm-hmm. that they're saying yes, there is this problem. We're suffering, but the way to to fix it is to basically have more French values imported. Um, and so that's what I was looking at, was these two particular authors have this hyper-Republican-focused discourse on on basically where to go next. Um, what I found particularly compelling was then in my Chapter 6, I look at Faiz again, who, again, was being called la burette des banlieues and being you know, using all these terms. And she was saying, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. This is not my life. Um, I, I lived perfectly, happily, and non, without any sort of violence or threats. Uh, and in one of the more powerful comments she makes at one point, she says to her interviewer, you know, I feel like I have to apologize for not being the victim of game rapes at the age of nine. And so she's identifying this this trend that her interviewers seem to want her to focus on very specific questions, and she's saying, "Look, that's not me, and I don't that I, I have nothing to say about that." Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I found particularly compelling about this juxtaposition was how strong this Burette discourse had become, for one thing in terms of this is the only way to read the female authored texts. But then also how Faiz again was trying to turn that on its head and say, that's not a fair question. Um, that's, that's not who I am.
0: In your readings of the work and representations in the media of Rashid Jaidani, you characterize this in terms of a shift from Beur to Bonneur writing. So what is that, shift mean, what's significant about it, and how does Jaidani's work function as a kind of emblem of that that change?
1: What I noticed, and it's not to say that the previous novels did not contain a an aspect or a, an essence that related to the balia, but what I noticed was that in particular with Rashid Jaidani and his first novel, Bunker, in 1997, and then with his subsequent works, we can almost capture the banlieue as as a character in in the works. That this is an added fundamental part of the equation. And what's particularly interesting about Bumke is that it starts with narrator saying, "Well, the banlieues are trendy right now, so I might as well jump on this bandwagon and <laughs> and, and and contribute something." And so it's, it's kind of an ironic take by saying. Okay, sure. You know, if this is if this is my ticket in, then I'll take it. Um, and and it so it contains its own critique of of the Bonio discourse. And at the end, it's the novel is set up as this character who wants to write a great urban novel. He's saying, okay, I'm going to write this book that's going to be the most you know important and glorious novel of the Bonio that ever existed. But by the end, he burns his notes and says, no, nobody can can be this intermediary. If you want to learn about us, you've got to come visit.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so there's this really interesting paradox where he's saying, you know, I'm not writing this book. I've burned my notes. And yet he has written his book that we're reading. And so there's this idea of the Balia is something that is not only a subject of fascination, but it's also something that is worth experiencing, discovering, understanding in a way that makes it really the crux of the book, more so than some of the previous previous authors. And what I noticed in this instance that then continues through particularly Jaidani's writing is also then saying, okay, the Bonia is this very specific space and it has a lot of crime and violence. Um, How can we understand that? So it's really not focused on an immigrant experience in the sense of, you know, the parents came at this time, and then the children grew up in this way. So it's not really an immigrant-based book in that sense. It's much more about, okay, here we are. We are a mixed community, and we're living in this very violent region with high unemployment, and, and how does that impact our daily lives? So it ends up being somewhat subtle shift in focus, but that actually changes much of the content and message of the book.
0: I wanted to ask you, Catherine, about something that I guess came up when we were talking a few minutes ago about Sharef and the novel and the film. Um, but comes up a lot in in relationship to Jaidani's career if we look at it, because he's, you know, written novels and films and directed films. Um, I'm just wondering about the relationship between the literary world and the world of these novels uh, and filmmaking, especially in this period post La N, you know, which is it seems like such an important turning point. How does that film, that Casavitz film, and then the subsequent films that are made, how does it shape the world of literature and what's the relationship there between the film world and the literary world for these
1: authors. Right. And for several of them, the relationship is, I guess I would say one in the same, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Mehdi Sharaf and Reggie, Rashid Jaidani both originally wrote their first books as screenplays. And so they had an interesting trajectory of screenplay, then rewriting as novel, then going back in some capacity to then be doing films for, um, for Sharaf it was a film adaptation of his novel. For Rashid Jaidani, it was other other films, but it was their entry point into the, I guess I would say, domain of of fictionalized artistic production. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar for Faiza again as well. Actually, she was discovered as a writer in a in a film production workshop. Um, one thing I noticed, and it seems, and it does make sense in some ways, is that. One of the major challenges of cinema, of course, is that it's expensive and it needs a a fairly large apparatus for support, both from the government in terms of the production visas and permissions, as well as financial, just to have to have access to everything. Um, So one thing I've noticed is that it seems like many of these authors do aspire to film. Fais again has done some television work as well, um, for example, and some other authors have, too but that that has such a high price of entry to get in that literature has provided them this first step, um, to, to, to moving to the next, to the next step. Um, Sharif today now, for example, is much better known as a filmmaker than as a writer. Um, even though he's continued, he's published some additional novels. Um, he's, he's released many more films. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't have a, a obvious answer for you but one thing I find fascinating is also in the final chapter um, I discuss a new author named Sabri Luata who wrote an interesting quadrilogy which has a hypothetical case of a Muslim president but instead of the Welbeck negativity of a Muslim Brotherhood style president this is a much different case and it's meant to be an, a, a president seen as a French Obama and so it's presented as much more of a positive exciting time time for the nation um, and then it, it turns into a crime mystery because someone tries to assassinate the president and it, it, it goes into the to the to the whole story of that um, and at the time of publication I had Chatted with Sabri Louata, and he was in the process of making it as um, a, a television screenplay for Canal Plus. Um, so I'm so I'm really curious to see if that finalizes and comes to fruition. But it's another case of the the bleed over between one genre and the other, and and I'll just be curious to see if it um, to see if it comes through.
0: Catherine, how many, if any, of the authors that you look at, authors and filmmakers that you look at, have produced works that are not at all set uh, in these communities and sites.
1: Right. And that is a question that creates quite a bit of difficulty for them. Um, And I, I bring that up in particular in my conclusion, because in 2008 there was a collective formed called Qui fait la France so, mm-hmm. kifé, as in who makes up, but then kifé, the verb, the slang verb meaning to love. Mm-hmm. So it's not just who makes up France, but who loves France. And it was a collective of authors of, Afri- of North African heritage saying, basically, we're sick of it. We're sick of being reduced to this label, this Bonnier label, and, and we want to do something else. And they published a collection of short stories right after that as part of their public coming out you could say and all of the short stories took place basically in the Bono <laughs> so there was this question from several journalists saying, okay we get it you know you're trying to move beyond this and you have a point but how do you how do you reconcile that with the fact that all of your all of your short stories are still, Um, are still doing the same thing Uh, Mm -hmm. and I think it's unfortunate they never managed to truly articulate how that how that fit together Um, I think Faiza again had the most thoughtful commentary on this Um, in particular her her third novel was intentionally not set in a Traditional Bonio, so she put it in, and it's still in the outskirts of Paris. But she took it way far out, kind of at the end of the RER line, more into the countryside than than into the the Cite. And so she was getting this question as well, and she was saying, "Look, you know, I I put it out here to show that I'm not really a one trick pony, but you're doing the same things to me because mm-hmm. people were still reading it as a Bonio style novel." And saying that you know, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be pigeonholing yourself, and she's the one who very clearly said, Look, I'm not pigeonholing myself you are um so she had a she had a pretty direct response to that, but you do identify one of the trickier um one of the trickier questions out there uh, Mehdi Sharaf has written novels that look at different questions still immigrant related but maybe focusing on the archi is one example or on um a, a school for distressed children, again, it's but it's a completely different different focus. Um, aziz Begag has written all sorts of things, including um, just very sweet children's books and different perspectives. Um, so, so we do see that there is a bit of a branching out. But one thing that I've noticed and that interested me was that still, we kind of still come back to the same corpus. Mm-hmm. And that informs, even from a, a, a Teaching perspective, You know, it's the books that we teach, it's the books that come back, um, that are still very much focused on, on this region, which again comes back to this paradox of how do we respect these novels as being something beyond simply a, a document? Um, and mm. how, how does that work?
0: Yeah, I'll admit that reading your book, I had to really think about how I've used, well, a few of the different books that you talk about, how much I've used them in my history classes in exactly the ways that you're, that you're talking about. And this question, you know, that I asked you earlier, when I was reading the book, I was thinking about this, well, I guess not so recent now, uh, discussion around Kashish, Delatif Kashish, and um, La Vida um, d'Elle. Because one of the things, I mean, in the huge array of critiques of that film and the filmmaking process and all of that, one of the things that I read somewhere in an analysis of the ways that Kashish was being taken to task for making that film seemed to have a kind of reading of, what is he doing making a film about these white teenage girls? (laughs) Like, that's not his domain. That's not what we want from him. So I was just curious about... Um, I mean, it's a tangent, but I I wondered about that, that sort of having read your book, thinking about the ways that it's difficult for authors and filmmakers who are wanting to produce work outside of these confines, how they're then subject to further critique because they're leaving the identity cage that they're
1: supposed to stay in. And it's and the only answer I can give is is an anecdote, um, mm. but it's that I was I interviewed an attaché de presse at Le Seuil, who publishes Aclitagère, and Aclitagère ended up not playing as major of a role in the book as. I initially thought he would, but he's another highly successful author who's published. Actually, perhaps one of the most prolific of, of the group, um, and he's published quite a number of novels based on various aspects of immigration, either as a younger child coming to terms with the Algerian War and understanding what's happening, as a being born in France and you know growing up and being ten years old in 1962. Um, and she was telling me, so I interviewed her in 2013, and Aclita had just written his first novel that had absolutely nothing to do with immigration, and it was about a middle-aged um, a white woman. And she was telling me that it's becoming really difficult for her to market him, because when she contacted journalists and you know, sending out review copies of the book, the answer she was basically getting was, well, that's not what he's – that's not what we use him for, in a sense. Um, and so she was, she was just, at the time, telling me how difficult it was to market this novel, even though Akli has actually won a number of Reader's Choice Awards and kind of local prizes, because his, his novels are very charming. Um, and so despite the fact that he's a reasonably well-known and appreciated author in France, as soon as he moved away from his perceived wheelhouse the marketing became a whole separate issue.
0: I wanted to ask you, Catherine, it's come up a couple of times in your responses. You know, you spent time with a number of the authors that you deal with in in the book's chapters. And I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about that experience, what some of the differences were in your conversations and, you know, what the authors who you have had contact with think about the analysis that you've brought to bear on their work and their media representations.
1: One thing I will say is that I think being American is helpful um, Hmm. in the sense that they see it as a different type of perspective. And they also see it as someone finally reading their works as, as literature. Um, And this is, this touches upon a much bigger question, but you know, the French literary university scene is pretty reticent to any form of contemporary writing and Mm. particularly reticent to any sort of kind of francophone or perceived as being trendy or popular. Most of the authors I had spoken to had met other American researchers in the past and were very friendly and and very generous. Um, Rashid Jaidani, for example, talked my ear off for about two and a half hours um, Mm. in a lovely way. Um, Someone like Farida Belgul had previously said she was done with meeting scholars because she was sick of talking to sociologists, basically. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, you know, she'd only been contacted by sociologists and that that was just not what she was trying to do. Um, I managed to get through to her and talk to her and it, and it turned out OK by um, very much saying I'm trying to, to to continue your fight in a sense. I, I pitched it in a specific way.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but I think what I just found in general was that because. These authors are not used to getting that much attention from scholars and then from an American scholar on top of it. They were extremely open, extremely enthusiastic. Um, it really only, I only needed to meet one or two, and then they introduced me to quite a number. So they, they you know, because it's a fairly small scene, they, they tend to know each other. So, yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is that I tried to just approach it as being very open and saying, hey, I'm asking these types of questions, you know, where where do you come at it from? And and they seem to like the fact that I was there to listen and not impose a very specific documentary reading on their work.
0: Um, by the time we get to 2016 now, Catherine, how much have these literary works made a kind of dent in the f- broader French literary universe? And, I mean, even just maybe one indicator of this, the kind of canon of you know, what's taught in universities and high schools, that kind of thing, how much evidence do you see of a change in the definition of what counts as French literature um, as a result of this, you know, these decades that you look at in the book?
1: One thing I thought about, and this is, I'm approaching it from a slight angle, but I'm I'm coming to your answer, um, is that You know, we as scholars, particularly outside of France, are teaching a certain corpus. As you mentioned, I do the same exact thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it's actually just based on what's available, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, what we can order, what is reasonably priced, what's in a posh format. And so that's one thing I kind of thought about was how, you know, the théorème has become this canonical Work and part of it's because it's available. Uh, Georgette went out of print for a really long time. It's um, it's been recently republished but under kind of national front circumstances, so that's a little awkward. But um, yeah, so I guess what um, what I kind of started noticing was that there was this there is this convergence between the authors who are receiving the most attention in the media, and then the authors that we tend to use. In the classroom. And and I think some of that is really just based on availability, but also Mm -hmm. the fact that these are very effective novels that we can use in very powerful ways. Um, And I use this as as a kind of starting point for some bigger questions that I ask throughout the book, but particularly at the end, in the sense of, you know, how does the marketing and just availability of these books then structure the larger trend of the debates that we're having in academia about francophonie and you know what does this word mean in given contexts how do texts or authors become identified as you know francophone what's what you know what kind of criteria comes through and then also what's the relationship of commercial success mm-hmm. because one thing i noticed is that we as scholars have created a type of loosely formed canon of these novels including Amina Shahrf asusebigog faz again and then are using that as a foundation to say okay what what are in these novels that are written by these authors but what we actually need to realize is that if we take a step back and look at why these authors were successful it's because they were presenting these topics to begin with so mm-hmm. i guess what i'm trying to get at is it almost becomes a tautology because we're trying to do a study of what in quotes, writing is, but we're looking at the texts that were pre-selected based on other criteria mm-hmm. through the media, um, and so that's just something that I find really interesting in a bigger picture because so many of the broader Francophone authors also fight back about this expectation that they have to be political, that they have to document this in their work, um, and so it, it touches upon a much a much bigger um, a much bigger question. Um, To get back to your question about the teaching in France in particular, Mm -hmm. um, there are several authors today who have focused quite specifically on youth. Um, Faiza, again, is one who is widely read. Um, both here in the u s but also in French high schools and at least when she first published the novel um, she was making appearances in all in high schools everywhere she was she was a big she was a big proponent of really getting out and encouraging people to write and showing how she's a normal person and you know everybody can do this but also that um that um you know she she's available um the collective that I mentioned that um, published the, the book of um, short stories, they also, as one of their founding principles, wanted to support youth writing and publishing in order to, again, contribute, contribute to a new generation of, of artistic engagement. So I think um, it's getting there. There is at least an interest in what these books can contribute and how they can help us understand a certain population. It's still tied up in much bigger questions, of course, because the French education system can be pretty rigid at times and having the flexibility to change things um, is not as easy as, as one might hope. Um, but I do see it as encouraging, nevertheless, that many of the younger authors today are, in fact, very um, proactive in, in getting out there.
0: So, Catherine, what are you working on now? The book came out in 2015. Where has your research taken you?
1: Well, it's it's an interesting question because I'm still I'm still pinning this down. But one one broader question that I spent a lot of time thinking about as I made my book re, uh, revisions was how how to use interdisciplinarity, because, of course, I'm using all sorts of, I'm using history, sociology, Mm -hmm. media studies, literary studies, and and I think it allows me to do something pretty unique um, and hopefully interesting. So with this French studies approach, I've been thinking about the city of Mm Marseille. And what I've noticed is that there have been some really wonderful recent studies of history and and looking at various time periods in Marseille, And there have been also some sociological studies of the makeup of Marseille and and a very small number of studies of the literature as well. But what I'm trying to grasp right now is is the unique, not just character, but even attitude of the city and what that means for contemporary notions of citizenship, of civic engagement, of even belonging in in various um, capacities. So this is still pretty vague. What I'm reading right now, or I'm trying to work through the novels of that have either taken place or written by Marseille writers, um, and what I'm noticing, not surprisingly, is that, at least today, the main genre of writing to come out of Marseille are the polar, so types of crime fiction, um, which I think ties into a much longer history of Marseille and the representations of it. Um, but what I'm noticing and I'm, I'm thinking a lot about right now is that... These polar and, and I'm looking at various writers, so it's not even just one writer, but they use the concept of fraternity in an interesting way where the investigations tend to be by, by professionals, so by police officers or journalists in some cases, and, and it is a procedural in that sense. But it's often done as a favor to a friend, as in, oh, this friend is worried about this person, or a family member has disappeared, or there's always kind of a very personal Fraternal connection between the investigator and the, the the bigger picture crime and everything. And what I find particularly compelling about this is the way it's creating a community that's not just based on the crime, but that actually goes beyond that. And how that how that representation defines a different way of living and being in Marseille. Um, but again, I know this is all still kind of at the beginning, at the beginning stages. But I'm hoping that I can use all sorts of different sources, resources, and perspectives to, to, to tie it all together.
0: Now I want to ask you about your thoughts on the Netflix series. Oh my God, it's so bad. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. I mean, I'm not a Depardieu fan um, in general, but um, yeah. Anyway, we can talk about that more off air. Catherine, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book.
1: Thank you so much for having me.